Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Well, um, this Sunday is, uh, to be honest, one of my favorite Sundays of the year. Uh, Can anyone guess why this Sunday is one of my favorite Sundays of the year? Anyone guess? An extra hour of sleep. It's like a... It's like kisses from angels to get an extra hour of sleep. I grew up in a family that very much appreciates sleep, uh, almost too much. And so to get an extra hour of sleep is so wonderful uh, for me. And so I'm so thankful for an extra hour of sleep. Sleep is a wonderful blessing from God. Sleep is a great thing, uh, unless it is not a great thing. You see, there are some times where sleep is not a good thing. Uh, Every Thanksgiving, we go down to Kansas City uh, as kind of a family reunion for me, and we drive back, we leave in the afternoon, and we drive till one or two in the morning to get back to Green Bay. And uh, during that drive, uh, it gets dark out and I get sleepy. And my wife, with her best intentions, says, I am wide awake. I can take over and drive for a while. And so she will get behind uh, the wheel and she will start to drive. And about 10 minutes goes by and she will say, I'm so tired. I cannot keep my eyes open at all. And so I end up doing most of the driving in the middle of the night. And to be honest, the hardest stretch is from Madison to Green Bay. But we're close enough that I don't want to stop at a hotel. And so I try all the tricks. I I eat sunflower seeds. I drink coffee. I I drink those five-hour energy drinks, which people condemn me. You're condemning me now. Like, Like, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I could admit to murdering someone and you'd be like, I'm sure you didn't mean it, but like not flossing or drinking five-hour energy drinks, like boo them off the stage, right? So, so it's, I, I, you'd say, yeah, those five-hour energy drinks are unhealthy. Well, what's unhealthier is running into a tree, right? And so I'm okay with it. It's for the sake of the family. But, but there are times even when I get off the highway in Oshkosh and I get on 41 North, I remember this where I am so tired, I'm literally slapping myself, opening the window saying, wake up, wake up, you're almost there, get there, right? You see, sleep is a great thing in the right context, but in the wrong context, uh, sleep is not only dangerous, but it can be deadly. And that's true spiritually as well. What we'll see in today's passage as Jesus addresses the church in Sardis is that the church has fallen asleep and is either dead or near death. And Jesus says, wake up, wake up, because there is so much at stake. And as Jesus speaks to the church in Sardis, he also speaks for the church today as well. And so let us hear this calling from our Lord to wake up. 
If you would, please open to Revelation chapter 3. Uh, we will be looking at verses 1 through 6. It is page 1029 in the Red Bible. As you turn there, I uh, just want to kind of walk through where we have been with uh, churches in Revelation. I think we have a map to put up there. Glad we have a map. There it is. And so uh, the Apostle John is writing. John has a vision, and uh, the Lord puts this stuff on his heart. And he's writing from the island of Patmos, where he is... Uh, basically in prison. It's like Alcatraz. And, and Jesus gives him this vision to write to the seven churches of Asia, what's called Asia Minor up there, which is modern day Turkey. And so he writes and he follows this postal route. He writes to Ephesus and he says to them that they are solid uh, doctrinally, but they have lost their first love. And then he goes up and he writes to Smyrna and encourages them to be faithful unto death because they are going through horrendous persecution. And then he writes to Pergamum, uh, who does not deny the faith, but eats food, sacrifices to idols, and practices sexual immorality. Last week, he wrote to Thyatira, uh, who tolerates unrepentant sin. And today, he writes to the church in Sardis, and he says, wake up. Let's read together. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord, this is such an important passage for the church in America. That slumber, that are asleep. It's important for many of us in here today who maybe are asleep spiritually. It's important for all of us as we get spiritually tired. And so God, pray through your Holy Spirit that you would convict us that you would lead us to the joy of Christ and the way everlasting. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. There are a lot of people in Green Bay who would call themselves Christians, but potentially are spiritually dead. They're good people, they're religious people, but spiritually dead people. People have the reputation of being 
Christians, but do not have the reality of it. And certainly some, even in our midst today, would say, I am a Christian. And you have the reputation of it, but not the reality of it. For all of us, I think we can at least admit that there are times where we slumber in our spirituality. And to this, Jesus calls us to wake up. You know, over the past uh, few months, we've looked at the seven letters to the seven churches, and we've explained how basically it's like a, uh, when you do a check-in with a physical doctor, except Jesus, as the great physician of the soul, is giving a spiritual diagnosis of these churches. And he's going church by church, and he is praising them for what they are doing right. He is being honest about their problems, their blind spots. He's providing a prescription for them for how to come out of that problem area. And he promises good things for those who do so. And so we're going to follow that same format today for the church of Sardis. So first we start with Jesus' praises for the church in Sardis. If you notice in your bulletin on the screen here as well, I have it listed as verse zero. Uh, I have never listed a verse zero before in all of my preaching career. And the reason why I list it at verse zero is because Jesus has no praises for the church in Sardis. This is the fifth church that Jesus is addressing. It is the first church where there are no praises given to the church of Sardis at all. And the other thing, the reason why this is significant is because this is also the first church that Jesus communicates to who does not encourage them to persevere amongst the form of persecution that is upon them. And so what we will find out as we go through these verses is that the church of Sardis has so blended into the culture that the culture has no issues with the church of Sardis. The reason why there is no praise for the church in Sardis is the exact same reason why there is no persecution for the church in Sardis. And that is because they have become one with the world. They have, re- they have no longer become distinct from the world. You see, Christians are called to be kind to the world, to be loving to the world, to be compassionate to the world. But we are also called to be distinct from the world, to be in the world, but not of the world. Because we live according to a different standard. We live according to the ways of God, what he has written in the scriptures. At least that's what we're supposed to do. And that collides with the ways of the world. And when those collisions happen, there comes suffering and sacrifice and pain. Let me give you a very present example for that in the Jackson household. Uh, you know, over the past few weeks, my kids have started basketball, and, and, and we're so excited. We love basketball. Basketball is such a great gift from God. And so, so today, it's kind of opening weekend, and we're so excited. And we get the schedule for two of our kids uh, who pray with, play, play with the public school, and what we discover is that they have uh, six or seven games this weekend, which we're so excited about. They're so excited to play. And as we read the schedule, what we find out is all of them are on Sunday morning. All of them are during church. And do you know why it's during church? Because in this culture, the perception is you got nothing better going on than new sports. You got nothing better going on than kids basketball. You have nothing better going on than 10-year-olds running around putting an orange ball in an orange hoop. You got nothing better going on, so we'll schedule at this time, and you come, you come, 
right? You come to this. And that's what the culture says is okay. Now, now I would guess that almost everyone on that team would call themselves a Christian, and some probably are. But here's the thing, is that we have become so acclimated to the culture that we have forsaken the fourth commandment. We have forsaken the gathering together of the saints. We have forsaken the priority of the church and of worshiping God on Sunday mornings as we are called to do. Now, some people might say, my priority isn't basketball. My priority is church, but, 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 but I have a commitment to this team, and I have to go. I, I learned a while back that you find out what people's priorities are, not by what they say, but by where their feet are, where they are on a Sunday morning. I, I, I can tell you what someone worships a lot of the time by where they are on 10 a.m. Sunday morning, whether it be a basketball game, fishing, hunting, whatever it might be, God calls us to come together. And, and this is unique. And, and for our family today, it causes pain. I mean, it even reveals in me my own idolatry of children's sports because it's so painful for me to say to my kids, sorry, you're not going. We're committed to church, we're committed to serving in the church, and so basketball is not our priority. It's painful for us. You see, if you are living faithfully to God, there are times where you will collide with the values of the world, and it will be painful. But this was no problem for the church in Sardis, because they had accommodated to the world. I mean, it's no problem for many Christians today. Because, because whenever the values of the world uh, collide with the values of God, they simply compromise the values of God to fit into the values of the world. And so if you are seeking to live faithful to Christ, you should experience pain. You should experience suffering. You should experience some form of persecution, not because you are mean, but because you are being faithful to God. And so here you see Jesus has no praise for them for the exact same reason why they have no persecution. Because they are not living faithful to God. They have a form of Christianity that has no distinction from the world. You know, this seductive values of the world goes far beyond Sunday mornings. It goes to our view of money and giving and generosity, of how we view sexuality and gender roles, of our view of a real heaven and a real hell and the only way of salvation. And I will be honest with you, I am so tempted to capitulate to the ways of the world. They seem so attractive to me. And yet Jesus says, wake up, Dan. Wake up. This is not the way of the Lord. If your Christianity causes you nothing, if it has no sacrifice attached to it, if there is no pain in dying to yourself to follow Jesus, maybe it's because you aren't a Christian. Or maybe it's because your Christianity has so capitulated to the world that it costs you nothing. And to people such as us, Jesus says, wake up, wake up. To keep that happy train rolling, let's look and see Jesus' problems with the church in Sardis. Look at uh, verse uh, 1, second half. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. 
And so the church has this reputation of being a lively church, a happening place. Maybe it is bursting at the seams. Maybe it is growing numerically. Maybe they have the best music, the best speakers. Maybe they have people raising hands and dancing. Or, or, or maybe they have the most formal church and the most reverent church. And yet Jesus has no praise for this church because even though they have a reputation of being alive, they do not have a reality of being alive. I don't know if you have seen the movie, The Sixth Sense. Uh, if you uh, have, you probably know where I'm going with this. If, if you haven't, uh, spoiler alert, you've had 20 years to watch it, so tough cookies, okay? But, but in the movie, The Sixth Sense, uh, there is this psychologist named Malcolm, uh, played by Bruce Willis. And he has a patient who is a young boy who has been bullied at school. And so Malcolm goes and visits this boy and helps him work through his things. And Malcolm says that he sees uh, ghosts, that he sees dead people walking around who think they're alive, but really they're dead. Well, you get to the end of the movie and what you find out that Malcolm, the psychologist, is actually one of those dead people who thinks that he is alive. And, and the, the key phrase in that movie, if you remember, he, the little boy says, I see dead people, right? I see dead people. That is his sixth sense. We have five senses. His sixth sense is he sees dead people. This is Jesus's sixth sense in a way. He sees dead people who think they are alive. And out of compassion and love and grace, he is saying, wake up, you're dead. But I want you to be alive. I want you to live life to the fullest. I want you to live faithful to God and happy to God, even if it causes pain and suffering in this World. I know that these churches exist. I know that these, quote, Christians exist that have a reputation of being alive but are dead. I know they exist because I was one of them for the first 18 years of my life. I was a part of a church, I believe, for the first 10, 18 years of my life that had a reputation of being alive but was spiritually dead. You see, it is completely possible for a church, even a, even a Christian, to have a reputation of being alive with no reality of it. You know, I'm curious, how would you characterize an alive church today? How would Americans characterize a, an alive church, right? Uh, they would, again, maybe say, oh, man, this church is so happening. Like, it's just growing. Like, it's alive. Or they have such, such, such expressive worship service. Or, or maybe the opposite, maybe they're so reverent and they're so formal and so, so ready uh, to meet with God. Maybe it's a church who is active in the community. Maybe one that does a lot of orphan care. Maybe it's one that has deep, deep theology. You know, none of these things are bad. As a matter of fact, all these things are wonderful, but they can also be a facade for deadness in the church. And so whether a church is formal or informal, expressive or subdued, it may be alive, it may be dead. And so the question is, how do we know? How do we know if a church is spiritually dead? How do we know if we are spiritually dead? Well, verse 2 helps us on that. Look at the second half. He says, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Let me translate that for you. In other words... Your half-hearted, culturally capitulating obedience shows me that your faith is dead. 
if a church is exciting and vibrant and growing numerically, but it is not growing in obedience to the Lord and conformity to the image of Christ and in holiness, chances are that the church is either dead or on life support. I think of the story in Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus says this. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who, and here's it is, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And then he says this. This just blows my mind. He says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, like speak these great sermons? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your names? If you show up at a church and there are great sermons and they're casting out demons and blind people are being healed in the name of Jesus, you're probably thinking, this church is alive, right? But then Jesus continues. He says, and then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. And then here it is again. You workers of lawlessness. How do we know if a people, a church, or even if we are spiritually dead? And we'll get into this more later, but it's if we are not growing in personal holiness, if we are not bearing the fruit of the Spirit, if we are not becoming more and more distinct from the world and more and more like Jesus. Let me give you this example. Let's say we're in conversation. I say to you, I'm a runner, right? Now, you might be skeptical because uh, you might see my profile and think, that's not really a runner profile, right? And so you start to ask questions. You're nice about it, but you're like, hey, how often do you run? And I say, well, anytime the dinner bell rings, right? Like, that's when I run. Uh, oh, what, 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 what routes do you run? Well, I run from my couch to the dining room table. I'm a runner, right? And they're like, okay, uh, what's your pace? I'm like, well, it's a pretty good pace because I really like food, right? At the end of that conversation, you're going to conclude Dan is not a runner. And why is Dan not a runner? Because he does not have the image of a runner. He does not have the profile of, the, of a runner. He does not have obedience to what it takes to be a runner. He's not willing to do the sacrifice that it takes to be a runner. And so you may say, Dan thinks he's a runner, but we all know Dan's not a runner. In the same way, what we see here is that people can think that they're spiritually alive. But, but, but if they do not show forth the image of Jesus in more and more fashion, if they are not willing to make the sacrifices to be obedient to what it means to faithfully follow Christ, if we do not see the fruit of the Spirit growing in their life progressively throughout their life, the conclusion we can come to is that they probably are not spiritually alive, but spiritually dead. Again, if you're Living out of faith causes you no suffering, no persecution, no sacrifice. At the very worst, your faith is dead, but at the very best, your faith is on life support. But the good news is this, is that Jesus does not leave us in our space of spiritual slumber. He calls us out. He says, wake up. And he prescribes this remedy so that we might become alive in Christ. And so let's look at that prescription. Look at verse 2. He says, 
wake up. Literally, keep awake or be watchful or be vigilant. This is, uh, this is a, a, a exhortation that is personal to the city of Sardis. I have a couple pictures here to point out why. You see the city of Sardis. You see these cliffs right here. The city of Sardis was right here in the valley of those cliffs. And these cliffs created a great way to keep out the enemy. And so they had a wall along here, and the city of Sardis was in there. Here you can see how steep those hills are. Right here you can see a little bit of a wall, which you'll see in the next picture. And then right here you see that wall. And so it was very hard for conquering armies to conquer this hill unnoticed, to pass by the guards and then scale down the other side of the mountain into the city of Sardis. And so really Sardis was, was kind of touted as this unconquerable city. And it was unconquerable unless the guards fell asleep. And there are two occasions uh, about 600 years and about 300 years before the writing of this, in which the guards did fall asleep. And, and someone snuck by the guards, scaled down the mountain, and then unlocked the gate to the city, and the enemy came in. And so what, what he is doing here is he is using a historical narrative that they are familiar with to say, listen, falling asleep is dangerous. It can be disastrous. So wake up. Verse 2 again, wake up. And strengthen what remains, the remnant of faithful, and is about to die. Again, early here he says the church is dead. Here he says some parts are about to die. In other words, he's just saying, this is urgent. This is urgent. He says, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. In other words, you've done just enough Christianity to give you a false assurance of salvation and the warm fuzzies. Verse 3, remember then what you received and heard. What did they receive and heard? They received the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They have heard that we belong to a new Lord, a new master, Lord Jesus, that we are called to live for him and to obey him. And then he says this, words that are very unpopular in slumbering churches, keep it and repent. What is the remedy for spiritual slumber. What is the sign of spiritual life? It is a church, a Christian that dwells on the word of God, that remembers the word of God, that remembers the gospel of God, that repents of their half-hearted obedience continually and surrenders everything to God, committing their total allegiance to him no matter what he says time and time Again, you know, if we turn, return to that passage in Matthew chapter 7 uh, that we read earlier about Jesus saying, you know, you cast out demons, all these things, now say, away from me, I never knew you. Uh, the next, he, he ends by saying this. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And so we see this consistent theme throughout scripture. The ones that are spiritually alive are not those that are doing the fantastic miracles necessarily. It is those who daily are living a lifestyle of repentance, feeding on the word of God, rejoicing in the gospel of Christ, and seeking to live more and more like Jesus. Now, if you're like me, you probably know that this is not only not easy to do, but it is impossible. And so the good news is that as we repent and turn away from sin, as we read the scriptures, as the Holy Spirit confesses, as we repent and turn away from sin, we also turn to our helper. We turn to Jesus. 
Look at verse 1 with me. He says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him, talking about Jesus, who has the seven spirits of God. That is talking about the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And the seven stars, that is the messengers who proclaim the word of God. And look at verse 6. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Why does verse 1 and verse 6 so emphasize the Spirit of God? It is because in and of ourselves, we have no power. We have no power to obey God. We have no power to have life in God. We must repent of our sin, turn away from it, and turn to the God who gives us the power to obey. See, here's the amazing thing. The church of Sardis, just like many today, had the reputation of a lie, but they were dead. But the exact opposite is true of Jesus. Jesus, amongst many, had the reputation of being dead, but he is actually alive. And this is so important for us as we seek to grow in Christ's likeness. You see, Jesus at the cross took on our half-hearted obedience. He took on our spiritual death and our sin, and he paid for it in full upon the cross. And then he rose again to give us newness of life. But it gets even better than that. Not only did Jesus raise from the dead, but he ascended into heaven and he tells his disciples that it is better for you if I go to heaven because I will send to you a helper. And that helper is the Holy Spirit. And so now, not only does God minister to us, but he ministers in us. And so Jesus is saying, listen, come alive, repent, obey. But I'm giving you the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit, to do in you what you cannot do for yourself. Turn, turn to Christ, turn to the Holy Spirit, and he will help you. Give you a quick example. You know, when my kids were little, I would say, hey, go, go get this thingamajig, right? And so they'd run and they'd go look for the thingamajig and they would find it, right? Where the thingamajig would be like up on a shelf. And so they'd come back, dad, I found the thingamajig, but I can't, I can't get to it. And so I'd go with them, and I would, I'd pick them up, and I'd say, all right, grab the thingamajig. And they would grab it, and they would give it to me, right? See, they didn't have the power to obey my commands. It was impossible. And yet I was more than happy to help them. In the same way, God is calling you to grow in obedience to him. But he does not leave you to do it on your own. He comes with you and in you through the Holy Spirit to empower you to grow in Christ-likeness. So just to recap, Jesus' prescription for the church in Sardis, but also for us today, is stop living in the deadness of sin, but to, to wake up, to feast on the word of God, the gospel of Christ, and to daily, hourly live a lifestyle of repentance where we are confessing our sin and turning to Jesus to strengthen us to grow in Christ-likeness. Finally, we get to the promises to the church in Sardis. First, there is the sad promise in verse 3 for those who don't repent and don't grow in godliness. Verse 3 says, remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I come against you. You see, the reason why he uses this metaphor of a thief is because a thief does not make an appointment. A thief does not tell you when they're showing up. They just show up unexpectedly. And so what Jesus is warning the church about is he's saying, wake up right now because you do not know when I am coming. 
I have a friend who, uh, whose, whose daughter is getting married, and, and so he asked the, the man that was going to marry her, he said, hey, when are you guys going to, you know, follow Jesus? When are you going to be serious about Jesus? And his response is, well, when we have kids, then we'll get serious about Jesus. This is the perception of many in America. You know, when I get to college, I'll be serious about Jesus. When I, when I, when I, when I, uh, you know, when I get married, I'll be serious about Jesus. When I have kids, when the kids are out of the house, when I'm retired, then I'll be serious about Jesus. And what Jesus is telling us right here is that time may not come. Jesus may return before then. And so the time to repent and to relinquish control of your life is now. Don't wait because he will come like a thief in the night. And if he comes and you are an unrepentant sin in your life, if you have turned away from Christ and he comes at that time, what it says in this passage is that he will come against you. I don't know what that means, but I know it's not good. And so he's calling you today, this moment, to wake up. That's the unhappy promise. The happy promise, verse four, for those who do repent, live a lifestyle of repentance. He says, yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. By this, Jesus is not talking about perfect Christians, but Christians who live a lifestyle of repentance, those who have sought not to capitulate to the world, but to be obedient to God, those who have not dirtied their clothes with the ways of the world, but have pursued purity and distinct and holy lives, even at great cost themselves. And what is so awesome about this verse 4 is that while Jesus is condemning the church, while he has no praises for the church in Sardis, Jesus says, but you faithful ones, you few, you remnant, I see you. I know your name. Well done, good and faithful servant. And then he moves on to the reward. And he says, and they will walk with me in white for they are Worthy. Here Jesus gives two promises. One is that they will walk with Jesus. And the second is that they will walk in, in white. Uh, you know, to walk with Jesus would be good enough. I mean, how cool would it be to go to Pamperin Park after service and just walk around with Jesus? Wouldn't that be amazing? And yet there's so much more to this. He says, you will walk in white. White was a color of victory in the Roman Empire. When they won, they would wear white. It's also in the Christian imagery. It's also a symbol of purification and justification in Christ. And so the happy promise for those who suffer faithfully is that even though they might be deemed as lame or losers in the eyes of this world, that they will walk victorious with Jesus forever. The victory talk continues. Verse five, he says, the one who conquers, we, we learn in Revelation that it's by the blood of the lamb. He says, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. In the Roman Empire, a criminal uh, who was on the rolls as a citizen of a city could have his name blotted out of that book so as to no longer be a citizen of that city. And yet here, Jesus is encouraging the, the, the struggling but the, the faithful Christians that your name will never be blotted out of the book of life. He says, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. I don't know if you notice in this chapter, but this word name uh, reoccurs several times. The first time we see it is in verse one. He says in the second half, I know your works and you have the reputation. The Greek word for reputation there is unima, which means name, okay? He says, you have the name of being alive, but you are dead. And then we get down to verses four and five. And he says, you, 
Yet you have still a few names, again, the word unima in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And then finally in verse 5, he says, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in garments, and I will never blot out his, there it is again, name, his unima, out of the book of life. And then here is this just mind, mind-blowing promise. I will confess his name, Unima, before my father and before his angels. You know, I've graduated three times in my life. I graduated from high school, from college, barely, and from seminary. And, and, and one of the most chilling things in the graduation ceremony is when someone who is of high authority calls out your name to hand you a diploma. Daniel Frank Jackson. This person of high authority before all these people is calling out your names and it's, it's humbling, it's overwhelming, it's chilling. And yet this is nothing compared to what is going to happen on the day of judgment. When the one who is speaking your name is Jesus himself. And he is speaking your name to the angels of heaven. And to God the Father, he is saying, Daniel Frank Jackson, or my heavenly name, I'm not sure which, Trisha Lynn Jackson. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Your name is going to be on the lips of Jesus, spoken to the angels of heaven, in God the Father Almighty. How unbelievable is the grace and mercy and love of God to receive us and even to proclaim us in all of heaven. Faithful Christian in a faithless world, you may be marginalized, dismissed, or ridiculed for your faithfulness, but there is this glorious promise that you will not be dismissed in heaven. The name, your name, will be on the Savior's lips before the Father. Let me end with this. Um, I have to tell you, it is very tempting for me, just personally, but also as a pastor, to accommodate the culture that we are in. Uh, because I don't like to suffer. I don't like hard things. Um, but that is what we are called to do. And, and a pastor wrote a testimony about this. I'm going to read it to you. It's a bit long, but I think it's just so applicable uh, to the passage that we're reading today. It comes from the Nine, uh, Nine Marks uh, ministry, which is a great ministry about church renewal. And this is a testimony that's shared by a pastor, okay? He says, I finished seminary in 2011 with MDiv and church growth and came to the church I now pastor. As soon as I got to the church, I began to market my church and move full on in contemporary ways. Mailers, movies, skits, felt needs preaching, topical preaching, improve your life preaching. It worked to grow a crowd. We went from 300 to 500 to 800, and we built a new worship center that seated 1,200 people. We hired lots of staff. We were very successful in the world's standards. When I've seen is in these years is a lifetime of church growth, tips, tricks, and miracles in a box. I sent out mailers and have done more than 500,000 pieces, all with felt needs approval. Growing numerically has been a roller coaster. What a miserable thing, allowing, uh, always looking for the next fad. What a sad thing for the local church. 
It is true that you, what you win them with is what you win them to. And we want to win people with and only with the gospel. If you win them with anything else, then they can say, well, this is a bait and switch. The pastor's testimony continues, and he says, then about a year ago, God convinced me to teach a verse-by-verse series through the book of 1 Peter. I guess since it was Sunday night, I would appease more of the conservatives in the church. I must say that God had a miracle for me in his word. I started preaching 1 Peter 1.1 and began seeking what God meant in the text instead of what I wanted to find in the text. Over the summer, the scales fell from my eyes and I saw things previously unknown. Namely, I saw the sovereignty of God in converting sinners. I simply taught each Sunday night what he taught me the week before. The audience watched in amazement. They saw God. They saw me alive with the power of God. They saw truth. They didn't know what was happening to me or to them. But God's children liked it. I saw them with pads and pens taking down everything I said. Every week since then, I was growing in the word. What listening to the brightest minds in theology over the past eight years could not do, one summer of expository preaching did. God's word is powerful. Not our use of God's word, but God's true message in his word is powerful. Not just to convert sinners, but to transform preachers. My Sunday night group liked it so much that I began to preach through the gospel of Matthew on Sunday mornings. I got a call from one of the church leaders saying, you are ruining the church with your theological teaching. At this time, our attendance has dropped to 500 people. But those who remain are happier, more peaceful, and hungrier for God than ever. We have new people coming, not because of our gimmicks, but because of our teaching. For those who love the bread are moving on, but those who love the meat are growing closer to God and loving him more. I am in a tension-filled time. The members I taught to value growth above all else now want me to pour more growth tricks I am lying in the bed that I made. I have a lot of teaching to turn the ship around. And then finally he says this. What I am working to do now is to teach biblical values to empower my congregation to make godly decisions and move the church into a model that honors God and not man. Here's the thing. Not every mega church is bad. Um, In the book of Acts, you see this church that, I think adds like 5,000 in a day. I mean, that's a big church. Uh, Charles Spurgeon had a huge church. Not every mega church is bad. But many times, um, churches grow rapidly because their primary goal is not being faithful to God and worshiping God, but growing the church. And so if your primary goal is to grow the church, to have a big church, what will happen is that you will compromise the word of God to capitulate to the culture, to offend no one so that everybody feels welcome. Church, let me promise you this. By the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, I promise to offend you with the word of God as often as I can. I promise to to tell you what the Bible says. 
about money, no matter how offensive it is. I promise to tell you what the Bible says about the Lord's Day, no matter how offensive it is. I promise to tell you what the, Lord, what the Bible has to say about submitting to governing authorities, no matter how offensive it is. I promise to tell you what the Bible says about gender and gender roles, no matter how offensive it might be. And you know what? It may mean we do not grow quickly, but it means that we will grow in being happy and holy in Jesus that we will be a living church and not a huge dead church with all of the gadgets. It means that there will be a day, <laughs> a day where you will be in heaven and your name will be on the lips of Jesus, spoken to the angels of heaven and God the Father himself. Let's pray. Lord, your word is offensive to our culture. It's offensive to our sin-loving hearts. Lord, we pray that you would offend us, that you would offend our hearts, that you would offend our souls with your teaching because your teaching, even though it's offensive, is so good. It's so much better than the ways of the world or the sin of our hearts, Lord. And so, God, may we be offended by your word. May we be convicted by your word. May we be repentant in our lives. May we, may we turn and remember the goodness of the gospel of Christ time and time again, that we are saved by grace and not by our works. And then may we live according, according to your gospel, according to your word, with our minds set on that day when you will speak our name because it is written in the book of life and it will never be blotted out. Help us, Lord, to live faithful lives, kind lives, loving lives, but lives that, that, that cause sacrifice, that cause pain, that cause tension in this world because we are not of this world, because we are citizens of heaven and our values are different. Help us, Lord. Give us that strength, God. Lord, as we turn to your table, we are mindful that we need your nourishment, Lord. And so, God, pray that you would nourish us through this supper to repent of our sins and to live faithfully for you, for your glory, but also for our good. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.